Turn with me to 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Uh, we're looking today, we've been looking at all the ways that uh, we ha- can answer the question, how do we live as people of the resurrection? Right? Easter is not just a single day. Easter is a season. And now we're beginning week seven of the Easter season. And uh, sort of the, we've come, to a, we've come to a turning point. The Ascension Sunday is a turning point where uh, after those 40 days of Jesus uh, giving us the best Sunday school class ever, where he explains that the whole word of God is fulfilled in him, he then ascends back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and be able to pour his power and spirit out onto the church. Now we're going to celebrate that next week in the celebration of Pentecost, the 50 days after the Passover. Um, But today, as we focus on the ascension, we're looking back over all the things that we've, uh, all the things that we've answered. What does it mean to live as resurrection people? We looked at uh, the prophecy given in Noah, who looked ahead uh, to God putting, uh, putting his battle bow in the sky and ending hostility. Uh, we looked to David, who wrote the 23rd Psalm about the king of love, Jesus, being our shepherd. And now uh, we're going to see what Peter has to say to a church who was under persecution. So this is 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. This is God's word, eternally true. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us by it thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Amen. Do you practice a safe Christianity? Uh, Right around Easter, the Daily Show host Trevor Noah uh, did did one of his normal nightly bits um, on what churches were doing at Easter. Now, I really like Trevor Noah. He's a really funny guy. He has a lot of, uh, he does a lot of cross-cultural humor, and in it says a lot of things that are really true. Although, I have to warn you, you can't just... Uh, watch all of his stuff because some he has some body things too. So it's this is not a, a complete endorsement of him. But but he was doing this thing talking about churches at Easter, and he commended churches for social distancing while observing their beliefs. Uh, and then he added this phrase. He said, uh, "Hey, that's the smart move because with modern technology, you can still get the full church experience and keep you and your family safe." With modern technology, you can still get the full church experience and keep you and your family safe. Uh, which of those phrases 
is more insulting to Christians, I wonder. Uh, I mean, to most of us who long to meet in person again, uh, it's probably the insinuation that every other institution that we say uh, has been disrupted and is pivoting and is looking for a new normal through the technology that we have, um, but, but insinuating that church online is no different than church in person? All right, I'm going to count that as a microaggression, and I'm going to forgive it. But I think the other phrase that he said would have really bothered the Apostle Peter, given the passage that we read this morning. Uh, Right? This is what he said. You can have the full church experience and keep you and your family safe. Look, to Peter, Christianity was anything but safe. Uh, Listen to uh, brilliant commentator Karen Jobes. Uh, Listen to what she says about the full church experience. She's worried. She says, uh, will Peter's readers have the resolve and the stamina to persevere to the end? Or will the insults, abuse, ostracism, and even more serious threatening pressures drive them to deny Christ, renounce the faith, and return to pagan beliefs and living, thus rejecting the gospel of God as surely as those who never made a profession? You see, What Job's is getting at is if we think the full church experience is safe, we're in for a surprise. Peter knows firsthand that Christianity is not safe, and he wants the church to know it too. Uh, To live as resurrection people, one of the things we have to talk about is suffering and persecution. Uh, It's a regular New Testament theme, and Peter is writing to a people who were scattered because of persecution. And I know that in America, in the West, this persecution is foreign to most of us who are listening to this. But the truth is, Christians must endure suffering and persecution because Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we're going to talk about persecution. We're going to see three things that Peter tells us in this passage about persecution. Uh, He tells us, don't be surprised. He tells us, glorify God. And he tells us to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. Okay? Uh, Don't be surprised, glorify God, and entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. You ready? Let's go. Uh, Don't be surprised. In verses 12 and 13, the first thing Peter tells the church about enduring persecution is don't be surprised. Uh, Well, then what are we supposed to do, Peter? Rejoice in participating. Now, when you have lived your whole life, like me, with uh, always every night having a mattress and a pillow to sleep on, to always have been in good shelter, to uh, rarely ever miss a meal, what is your first thought uh, about God when you encounter suffering for any reason? What's your first thought? I mean, mine is, did God go away? What's your second thought? Mine is, did I do something wrong? See, when I encounter suffering, I think, did God go away? Did I do something wrong? But Peter in verse 12 is saying, don't be alienated in this suffering as if something alien were happening to you. Trial by fire may not be happening because you're doing something wrong. It could very well be happening because you're doing something right. He says that trial by fire, rather than being a sign that God has gone away, is a sign that you actually have drawn near to meet him. Now, is Peter a masochist? Does he just like pain? No. He likes fellowship, which is the other way we can translate that word share or participate in Christ's suffering in verse 13. 
Here's what Peter explains. Christ suffered and his suffering led to glory. So those in Christ will also suffer and that suffering will also lead to their delight in his glory. Often when people in the church say fellowship, uh, we mean uh, get a cup of coffee and talk about the weather and tell a few jokes. Now look, there's nothing wrong with coffee and jokes, uh, but if that's the sum total of your fellowship, then it's not really Christian fellowship. The question is, do you fellowship in the suffering of Christ? Uh, Peter pointed people to God who created them, God who redeemed them. Uh, Christ corrected false notions about God and religion that people had. Christ invited in those who seemed farthest from God, and he invited in the kind of people that religious people tended to despise. And that suffering of Christ didn't win him any friends. In fact, eventually it got him killed. What is your fellowship like? I mean, I'm convicting myself when I ask the question, let's just be honest. Most of the time, I am content to let the coffee talk be about the weather and jokes. Uh, And look, Christian conversation doesn't always have to be intense. Uh, The the, the topics don't always have to be theological. I, I mean, in fact, the person I think who always wants to argue or pick about theological points can be uh, just as boring as the person who only wants to talk about the weather and surface conversation. But let's be honest, sometimes... It's hard in church to bring up real things underneath our conversations. Sometimes it's hard to talk about life's suffering Uh, because there's a suffering that comes from being someone like a Christian parent whose children don't walk with the Lord. There's a suffering that comes from being the only Christian at your workplace uh, when you won't join in with bawdy jokes or workplace gossip. And maybe that leaves you on the outs. Or maybe you feel guilty when you come to church because when you're at work, you're one person. And when you're at church, you're different. Even in our soft mattress world, there is unique suffering that Christians have. Now, one of the questions is, are we brave enough to share that suffering with each other? And are we brave enough to encourage one another as we suffer? Um, If you're a Christian, your suffering really will give way to a greater glory. And if that's true, then why wouldn't you find a way to share both your suffering and the glory that you're going to experience? Christians love Jesus, place their faith in Him, but Christians still have moments of doubt, loneliness, and depression. Jesus also suffered in that way. He sighed about living in a faithless generation. He got angry that the house of God was turned into a den of robbers. Uh, His sweat was like drops of blood when he faced the suffering of the cross, asking the Father to let that cup pass from him. Where would you rather not be a Christian anymore, as if that were possible? Uh, When you participate as a Christian in that place anyway, you will suffer And that suffering will turn to glory. Uh, The Diary of Perpetua uh, is one of the first writings that we have in history uh, from a Christian woman. She was 22, and because she named the name of Christ, she was put in prison in Carthage in North Africa. And she was sentenced to die because of her Christian faith. 
And Perpetua, as she was being taken to the arena to be killed, uh, her father followed after her. He wasn't a Christian, and he was pleading with her, please, Perpetua, think of your family. Think of your mother. Think of your sister. Think of your infant child. And Perpetua turned and answered her father. She said, Father, do you see there in the corner that water pot? And he said, yes, of course I see it. And she said, well, that's what it is, isn't it? It's a water pot. It's not something else, yes? Can it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no, of course it can't. And she said, then I cannot be anything other than what I am. I am a Christian. And because she was a Christian, she was taken to the arena and she was killed. They allowed a wild cow to gore her to death. And she was there in the arena with some others. She was helping uh, another woman who was with her. And in the midst of the carnage that was happening, uh, her hair fell down. And very close to the end, uh, when the end had almost come, she took a second to stop and, and asked one of her friends to help her put her hair up. Because loose hair hanging was a sign of mourning. But Perpetua, in her suffering, didn't want to be seen as mourning She wanted the people to know that she was rejoicing because she was participating in the suffering of Christ that would result in her glory. Don't let this surprise you. She endured the fiery trial because she could not be anything else. Don't let it surprise you. Let it move you to rejoicing. The second thing that Peter says in verses 14 through 16, uh, he tells us the second thing, to glorify God. Why? Because you share in the name of Christ. You are a Christian, and that means you also share in this suffering. Now look, Christian, uh, we we use it now, uh, but back then Christian was not a good label. In Acts 11.26, we find this word Christian uh, for the first time, and we see it in the Bible, literally the term Christian is only used three times. First, in Acts 11.26, it was a label applied to the church at Antioch, and that happened when the church was first scattered because of persecution. Uh, right? There were these uh, little Christ followers scattered around Rome. Uh, they had tried to gather themselves together into a fire that the world could see. And yet the Roman Empire was stamping out this fire and sending the coals out so that they would, you know, sort of roll off into the outskirts of the camp and diminish and go cold. But a different thing happened. The more the empire crushed and tried to spread this fire to kill it and dampen it, uh, the more other things caught fire until uh, the religion of Christianity, these Christians began to catch fire all over and change the Roman Empire completely. The second mention of the name Christian is in Acts 26:28, where Paul is brought before King Agrippa as a prisoner. And King Agrippa says to Paul, in such a short time, Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul Would you persuade me to be one of these little Christ followers? You know, you can almost hear the sarcasm in his voice. And Paul's answer is one of my favorite verses in Scripture, Acts 26, 29. Paul says, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. Uh, Why does Paul say, become such as I am, without saying, become a Christian? 
Well, because Christian was a bad label, uh, right? Uh, because who did Christians refer to? Uh, Christians, Christian referred to those people who were cannibals. Some Christians were uh, executed because they were cannibals. Cannibals? They ate the body and blood of Christ. And when people heard they ate the body and blood of Christ, they assumed they must be cannibals and, they're, and therefore worthy of death. Christians? You mean those people who are incestuous in their family? What? Yes, Christians were executed be, uh, because they were uh, tried as being in, uh, incestuous. Because they called one another brother and sister. All of them called one another brother and sister and gave each other a holy kiss. Therefore, that must be incest. And so they were persecuted. You see, one of the ways that you can persecute someone is to take their good things and to twist the meaning of them into something bad until the name Christian becomes a pejorative label. And so Paul doesn't want to uh, receive that label and say it back and say, yes, I'm a Christian. He says, yes, I wish everyone would be as I am, not what you might mean by that word and twist it to be. But Peter in verse 14 says that if you are insulted in the name of Christ, if someone takes the good things of Christ and twists them into something bad regarding you, then the spirit of Christ rests on you. And for that, you'll be persecuted. The story of the 40 martyrs of Sebast who were killed in 320 AD on a frozen pond in a place that's now part of modern Turkey. Um, even after uh, the Edict of Milan was signed by Constantine, that was a, uh, a document that was supposed to put an end to persecution in the Roman Empire at that time, there was a rival emperor named uh, Licinius who continued to persecute Christians in the East. And so these 40 men who were Christians uh, were rounded up and they were sentenced to freeze to death by being left naked on a frozen pond overnight. They were guarded so that they couldn't get away. But to add insult to injury, we should say this, we should let you know this. Uh, You know, the Romans didn't want to kill you so much as they wanted you to apostatize. They wanted you to deny your faith. And if you could do that, things would be okay. So what do you think they also had there when those guys were naked out freezing on the ice? Just a little distance away, they had a bathhouse with warm water, towels, and clothes so that any of them who were standing out there on the ice at any time they were ready to apostatize could walk away, go into the bathhouse, and warm up and spare their lives if only they would denounce their faith in Christ. The 40 of them stood out there singing, uh, 40 good martyrs, soldiers of Christ. And as they sang on through the night, one of them actually broke ranks. He couldn't take it anymore. He went out and he went into the bathhouse to warm up, uh, where it's said that he actually died because of the shock of going from the extreme cold to the extreme heat. But there's another part of the story that, uh, that may or may not be true that's told that one of the guards who was guarding them at watching these men stand together who were being persecuted solely because of the name of Christ when he saw their witness now singing 39 good martyrs, 39 soldiers of Christ, he took his clothes off and went out onto the ice with them to be a martyr for Christ, to take the name of Christ for himself, uh, onto himself. And then the number was back to 40. Now, uh, you know what the hardest thing about that story is? is that it just seems so far away and distant from my reality. I mean, every once in a while, I've been made fun of for being a Christian, but I have never been in a large group where all our lives were under threat simply because we were Christians. 
Uh, you know, one of the first mentions, we know this story about the martyrs is true. One of the first mentions about them comes 50 years after their death in a sermon by Basil of Caesarea, who was uh, one of the theologians who uh, was a part of the Council of Constantinople uh, that, that put together the doctrine of the Trinity that explained what the Bible says about the Trinity. So uh, it may be far away from us. It may seem strange to us, but it's not a legend. It really happened. But persecution feels far away from me and maybe from you too, if you're a Christian listening to this today. Certainly the idea of rejoicing at persecution feels far away from me. I mean, I've had enough trouble lately just regulating what I feel in the midst of a a global medical crisis, uh, knowing that churches have been closed uh, sort of at government order. And I've read much about churches being closed, and I've read, uh, read about uh, fines being levied, and, I, and I've read about churches being angry and really feeling uh, persecuted, and people sneaking around to have church anyway. Um, but even all of that that I've read about in the news lately feels pretty far away from the kind of pers- uh, persecution we're reading about when we talk about Perpetua and the 40 martyrs of Sebast. But I want to remind us that hateful ideas and hateful words can become murderous actions faster than we think. But notice that Peter does not say, arm yourselves, get better lawyers, protest daily. That's not what he says. He says, when you endure this persecution, rejoice in your share in this. Rejoice in your share in the name of Christ and that you would suffer as he suffers. In another article, I read about what's going on in Chinese house churches. It said, uh, nearly all Chinese house churches have been questioned by the police. Some have been kicked out of their worship space, sometimes out of multiple worship spaces. A few have spent time in jail. But the modern Chinese pastors and church members attending uh, the conference that's mentioned in this article spoke of sharing the gospel with the police who were questioning them, praying for their fellow inmates in the jail, and talked about being willing to suffer for Christ. One of them said, the mark of the church is the cross. If you truly live the life of Christ, he said, you will be persecuted, but you will also have resurrection power. You will have the power to suffer. Do you have power to suffer? Right now, we in America live in relative safety. But let me ask you, does that safety keep you quiet about your faith in Christ? Or are you public with your faith? Do you share the reason for the hope that you have like we spoke of last week? Uh, Yes, of course, do this with gentleness and respect, but not with hiding, trying to avoid uncomfortable situations. Glorify God in the things that you suffer, being public with your faith. And then finally, in verses 17 through 19, Peter helps us see uh, what Christians should do while we suffer or when there's the threat of suffering. Christians should do good. Uh, So with that, I have to touch on verse 15 with this too, right? Where Peter says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Uh, And some translations take that word meddler and translate it busybody. And I think that's a really good way to bring that word uh, across from the original language. Um, In other words, Peter is acknowledging something. He's acknowledging that Christians can be really annoying jerks. Uh, 
I don't need to say more about being murderers or thieves. I mean, that makes sense to Christians and to non-Christians alike. No, no one wants to suffer as a murderer or a thief. If you, if you murder someone or if you're a thief and you go to jail, that's not persecution. That's, that's the reason you're in jail. But that word translated meddler uh, is even very, very woodenly and literally uh, like a second bishop. Uh, it's like the nosy neighbor who's always peering over the fence at your yard. It's uh, the person at the window with the binoculars watching you uh, who sees you and then rushes out the door to come and give you some unwanted, unasked for advice. Peter says that Christians should not have that attitude in their heart. Why? Because you may suffer unfairly uh, because of the name of Jesus, but if you're a jerk as well, then it's not all that clear why you're suffering, is it? right? If you're suffering, like I said, if you're suffering as a murderer, you go to prison. Um, If you suffer as a thief, you go to prison. If you're a nosy neighbor and a Christian, and then your your neighbor rolls their eyes every time you mention the name of Jesus, uh, you can't really know whether they're rolling their eyes at Jesus or just at you. In other words, Peter is saying this, live your life in such a way that the only crime you can be guilty of is holding the Christian faith. In verses 17 through 19, I think we can summarize it by saying that God is going to judge the whole world. It's his world that we all live in. And that judgment has begun for the church. Those in the church are judged worthy when, with God's help, they hang on to Christ in the midst of unjust suffering. And that means we need to let go of everything else except our union with Christ. So how do you have union with Christ in the first place? That's in verse 19. Entrust your soul to the faithful creator. Faith in Christ is giving everything you know about yourself to everything you know about Jesus. Jesus is the beloved son of the father. He was sent to walk this earth. He was sent to suffer and be rejected so that when you suffer, you would never be rejected by him. In his suffering, the groaning of creation is put back right. And now Jesus has ascended back to glory, to the right hand of the Father. His suffering and glory now can never be taken away from him. And that means that you cannot suffer more than Christ for your salvation. Right? And uh, what I mean by that is that should actually guard Christians from self-pity. Oh, poor me. No one has suffered more than me. That's not true. Jesus suffered unjustly for the sins of the world. No one deserved glory more, so no one ultimately suffered more. And that should guard us from having self-pity. But it also means that when you receive Jesus, when you participate in his suffering, you also share in his glory. So there's nothing better that the world can offer you. And that should make Christians uh, the greatest force for good that the world has ever seen. If the world's riches aren't better than the riches of Christ, then you can actually use the riches of the world uh, to do good to others. You don't have to hoard riches for yourself. Uh, In other words, it should also make Christians the best friends that anyone could ever want. If, If friendship with Christ is better than the world's friendship, then you are free to use your friendship to do good to others. Christians ought to be the best friends to people who have no friends. It doesn't mean that you become a doormat and lose yourself. It means that you love others for their good, 
not for your own advantage. And that means uh, you love them whether you have to say yes or no to the requests that they make of you. You don't lose your identity. You gain a greater identity, that love that nothing in the world can take away. So I'll say it again. Live in such a way that the only crime you can be guilty of is holding the Christian faith. Polycarp was a disciple of John who was burned at the stake in 155 AD. He was an old man who was asked to deny the Lord. Now, again, Roman persecution wasn't so much about killing you as it was to get you to deny your faith in Christ. Change your belief. Just just change it enough so that it's a little more palatable to the Roman state or uh, to Roman society. All Polycarp had to do was burn a little bit of incense to the emperor as a way of venerating him, and then he could just retire in peace. Polycarp had done so much good, and he had avoided death in an age where Christians were being killed daily. They were in hiding for fear of their faith. And now at the end of his life, what would he do? You know, Christians were often killed for being atheists. Yes, uh, my, uh, my atheist free-thinking friends are usually surprised to find that out. Uh, it, it, it wasn't that Romans wanted to kill Christians, uh, but they definitely needed to kill atheists. And Why? Because in in Rome, uh, they believed that gods watched over the city. And if you didn't participate in the worship of those gods, then bad things might happen to your city. So the worst thing that you could do is be an atheist. Being an atheist was like uh, being unpatriotic and like committing treason. So now, why were Christians atheists? They were atheists because they worshipped a god you couldn't see. All the Roman gods had temples and idols, and they could be made of gold. Christ ascended and could not be seen. And Christians could not make uh, make an idol to worship him. And so you couldn't make idols that you could sell. And you couldn't make your god into economic merchandise that would support the local economy. And you didn't need magic books to make and buy to conjure the Christian god. And the Christian God didn't need food sacrificed to him that you would buy from vendors as part of the economy and and do that. So you couldn't see this God, and you couldn't buy this God, and you couldn't sell this God. And that made Christians atheists. So what would Polycarp do? They gave him one last chance. Look, Polycarp, all you have to do is look out at your fellow Christians here and say to them, away with the atheists. If you can just say, away with the atheists, we'll take them and execute them, and you can live and uh, retire in peace. Polycarp said, okay. But he turned and pointed to his captors, and he said, yes, yes, away with the atheists, (laughs) pointing to the ones who had gods you could see and buy and sell. See, Polycarp entrusted himself to a faithful creator. And what did he say before he was burned at the stake? He said, I've served him for 86 years and he has done me no harm. How could I curse my king who saved me? Ultimately, knowing King Jesus who saved you is what gives Christians incredible power in the face of suffering, especially persecution. And while they may be accused of being jerks, they actually should live lives as model citizens because they're living as emissaries from heaven while here on earth. 
But foreigners in a strange land are, all, uh, are often unjustly blamed and persecuted. So Peter has told us, don't be surprised. As Jesus suffered, so will you. And as he is glorified, so will you. Glorify God. Don't be ashamed when people shame you for being a Christian. You share in, one, in the one name that will last through all eternity. And trust the faithful creator. Do good in this world now. Use the good things that you have in this world the things that you cannot keep, to do good to all those around you. Because if you think it's hard being a Christian, what will the end be for those who spurn God by treating Him like an object that they could buy or sell? It was the missionary Jim Elliott, and I'll close with this, in the 1940s who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And Elliot ultimately lost his life while trying to give the gospel away to a group of hostile South American natives. But he trusted himself to a faithful creator who saved him, and then he entered into glory. Will you share in that glory too? Let's pray. Lord God, faithful creator, you made the world and you are redeeming the world. Give us a glimpse of your glory that we might have power to endure the suffering of this life, whether unjust persecution or the brokenness of life. Give us the faithfulness of Christ that we may count his name above all others and so enter into his glory when it is fully revealed by you and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.